Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast with me, Gary McGowan, live from London with Mr. Patrick Farrell. Paddy, how are you? I am absolutely fantastic, Gary, but we are not live. This is a pre-recording and it's going to be set out on a, you know, a drip on Monday and today is Saturday. You're not wrong. But we are together in person for once, recording from London. We're over for the weekend to see... Well, I'm actually over here all the time, Gary. Okay. So he's making it very difficult for me. I'm in London, visiting Patrick in Vauxhall. He's been doxxed now. And we're going to Mr. Joe Rogan's comedy show this evening. And uh, potentially the Churchill War Room. So having a great time. And one thing that you notice when you come to a filthy, dirty city like London compared to beautiful Kerry is the decrement in air quality. And one of the things that that's related to is respiratory diseases. And so far we've been doing a medical exercise series and we've talked a little bit about cardiovascular disease. And that's something that gets a lot of airtime when people talk about exercise. But what they don't often talk about is respiratory disease or diseases of breathing, diseases of the chest, okay? And this does have um, an intrinsic relationship with exercise as well, because as you'll hear when we talk about fitness, we often use the phrase cardio, respiratory or respiratory. And this effectively, you know, pays some homage to the fact that the cardiovascular and the respiratory system are intrinsically linked. And exercise does lead to some adaptations in healthy people within the lungs themselves, but more broadly within that system as a whole. And there's two questions here. And those questions are one, does exercise prevent uh, respiratory diseases? And then two, can exercise be used in the management of respiratory diseases? So if you have some sort of condition like asthma or COPD, does exercise play a role for you? And the answer, of course, as always, to both of those questions is yes. Now, to start with, just going to run over very quickly some of the, the fundamentals of breathing that will help you to understand why exercise might play a bit of a role here. Okay. So in order for us to stay alive, number one, but especially to, you know, supply our muscles with what they need uh, to exercise, we need to have good respiratory function. I suppose even before that, we should just go back. Mm -hmm. Like you need to breathe because your cells need oxygen, right? And the reason your cells need oxygen is because that oxygen is required to break down the carbs, the fats, and to an extent, the protein to use for energy, right? So we always talk about ATP as like, oh, this is the, the energy in the cell. But to get that ATP, well, it's not always completely true, but basically to get enough ATP for our demands, we need to have oxygen, right? So all of the lungs, all of this respiratory stuff, even the circulatory system to an extent is a way for your cells to get oxygen. It's also like, that's not completely correct. It's also a way for your body to manage the amount of oxygen that is going to the cells. It's not just about like absolutely destroying your cells with a load of oxygen. Like you do want to have it dripped into the system rather than just completely oxidizing the system, effectively rusting the system, Mm -hmm. right? So keep that straight in your mind. You need oxygen if you're going to be able to break down carbohydrates, proteins, fats, et cetera. And how do you get oxygen? You breathe, right? So that's the fundamental. That's that's why we breathe, Mm -hmm. right? But how do we breathe? 
And the other part of that, just before we move on, is that especially during exercise, um, during exercise metabolism, we generate a lot of carbon dioxide or CO2 as part of that metabolic process. And we also need to be able to breathe that out in order to regulate our physiology. Because if you have an excess of CO2 in the blood, you end up with an increase in carbonic acid and a reduction in blood pH. And that's when you end up with acidosis, okay? And that's not something that our, our body likes. If we have acidosis or acidemia, the pH, the pH is too low, um, our cells can't function properly and we run into all sorts of problems. And that's- And, and you kind of experience a little mini kind of experience of this if you do some like very anaerobic cardiovascular work or just anaerobic training in general, and you get that kind of burn in your muscles, or you might even get it, like if you do so, like, a, like especially a couple of sets of sprints, you start noticing that like, okay, I kind of feel like a, there's this kind of hard feeling. You almost kind of feel sick a little bit mm-hmm. um, and that's acidosis, right? That's a very simplified uh, explanation of what's going on, but it's a consequence of that acidosis, that buildup of hydrogens in the system as a result of effectively completely taxing your ability to uh, actually produce uh, energy. Yes, and the respiratory system plays such an important role here because, you know, it's it's not just a case of, okay, we need to breathe to get rid of carbon dioxide. We also need to be able to regulate it really well so that we don't breathe too much. If you hyperventilate, what you do is you blow off all your CO2 and then you end up with alkalosis. So there's this fine balancing act where you have the respiratory system um, and, the, and the kidneys as well that play this really important role in keeping your whole physiology in a relatively consistent state or within small margins. So the respiratory system should be thought of in terms of its ability to supply your blood with oxygen to get rid of CO2, but it's also playing a very important role there in terms of the the regulation of metabolism in some sense too. So that's an important thing to note. Now, with all of that said, um, how do we breathe? Humans breathe through primarily um, negative pressure ventilation. And what that means is that our diaphragm contracts, our intercostal muscles as well, but primarily our diaphragm contracts. What that, what that will do is it drags the bottom of, you can think of the chest as being a cylinder. It drags it down. It increases the volume, reduces the pressure. And what ends up happening is air flows down a pressure gradient from outside your mouth down into your lungs. And then that's how it gets in there. Okay, so we need muscular control of that we there are muscles involved in that and generally in the vast majority of cases we don't experience much fatigue in response to that because they're relatively low level contractions but when someone has let's say severe asthma and they're constantly hyperventilating they can actually end up getting fatigue in those muscles and they're not able to breathe at the the rate that's required anymore so it's still like an exercise like event that's occurring within your chest and those muscles can, like any other muscles of the body, become fatigued. Now, that's just viewing the chest as a very simple cylinder. But of course, it's not that. When air- just, just on that as well, because I actually, I used to find this very hard to visualize. Like, you know, say oh, your diaphragm, people say like diaphragmatic breathing, and you're kind of going, what the fuck is a diaphragm, right? Because we're often taught, I suppose, and we also often think of the, the chest, like you said, as a cylinder. It's just this like, this barrel basically and we have like guts in there and I, I, I can't see them so I don't really know what's going on right but the way I kind of think of it and I, again you can agree disagree with this but the way I kind of think of it is you have your heart and your lungs right and they're kind of separated by the diaphragm 
from everything else, all the rest of the guts, mm-hmm. right? Now, that's not perfectly true, but let's just say it like that, right? And the way I think of the diaphragm, it's kind of like a, a plunger, right? So you ever yeah. see like a plunger that you use to, you know, unclog your toilet or whatever. It's kind of like that, except it's up, right? Or down, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's up, right? <clears throat> so that plunger effectively is below your heart and your lungs. And when you're inhaling, you're basically pulling that plunger down. So that's your diaphragm, like pulling down. And that's causing this, like you said, negative pressure. And as a result, your lungs expand, right? They inflate because you've got this plunger pulling down, right? So that's the way I kind of think of it. Because again, it can be very abstract when you just say, oh, your, your diaphragm, like, and as if we're supposed to know what that looks like. And then when we say negative pressure or whatever, you're kind of like, what the fuck does it, what does, what does that even mean? You know? So I just think of it, it's a plunger. Like you've got this barrel for a, a torso, Halfway through it, there's this plunger. And when you're diaphragmatically breathing, you're pulling that plunger down and that's causing the, the lungs to expand. Exactly. That's exactly it. And that air then flows in um, from the external environment. It obviously enters through either, through either your mouth or your nose. We won't differentiate between those for now, but it enters down there, goes into the trachea, and then it will go into um, various different airways that basically decrease in size until they get down to the alveoli, which are the little sacs where that um, exchange of those gases will take place with the capillaries that surround them. So you've got these these decre- these uh, airways that are decreasing in size as they go into each of the lungs, and they become extremely narrow. And the flow of air can be compromised by very small changes um, in the diameter of um, a tube like that. Uh, so that's true of water flow, it's true of airflow. And as a result, if we have any disease that impacts the size of those airways, uh, that can compromise our ability to, to have effective respiration. Um, similarly, if we have uh, difficulty expanding our lungs, you know, if we have a decline in that diaphragmatic function or our lungs are really stiff, which can happen in some diseases, uh, it can be difficult for us to get that air in. So there's a number of different things that can occur there. You can have diseases of the alveoli, you can have diseases of the um, bronchi or bronchioles or the trachea even. So basically anything that can impact the size of those airways, or it might be that there's something clogging it like mucus, for example, that can impact our ability to, uh, to have effective respiration. And that's effectively kind of at the root of the vast majority of respiratory diseases. You either have difficulty expanding the lungs, so you might have a restrictive lung disease, or you have something along something that's blocking uh, the flow of air, which would be an obstructive lung disease. So that could be contraction of the, of the smooth muscle within the airways, that they're just too contracted, like we can have an asthma, um, or there might just be Uh, lots of, um, there could be blood in some cases, there could be fluid in some cases, or there could be mucus or phlegm in some cases as well. So that explains, like obviously not going to the pathophysiology, but that's kind of at the root of a lot of respiratory diseases. So there is also just on that, just to round out the knowledge, you can also have like something like a lung puncture and just completely, you know, if we have that again, plunger analogy, like the lungs are not going to have this negative pressure because the plunger is pulling down, everything's good but there's a hole in the balloon, balloon even, that is your lung, right? So just to, to round out the... Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you could have, of course, there's, there's so many different diseases you can have in the lungs. You can have tumors, you can have 
Um, the only other thing I suppose it doesn't fit into the previous category would be something that impacts the circulation in the lungs. So a pulmonary embolus, embolus, which is where you basically get a blockage among the arteries that supplies the lungs. And then you don't get this effective exchange uh, between the gaseous side and the blood side. Okay, so that's another category. But primarily what we're kind of going to focus on in this episode is COPD and asthma, because they're probably the two most relevant when it comes to discussions of exercise cystic fibrosis is also really important but i'm not going to touch on that much in this episode because it's a little bit more complex exercise plays a really important role but it's also a very multi-system disease that requires further discussion so with that said what we want to start by understanding is well does exercise play a role in the prevention of respiratory disease and the answer to this is yes okay so the lungs do adapt to exercise. So you do have an improvement in your lung function. So if you measure the lung function of athletes, they'll generally be a lot better at taking a lot of air in and getting a lot of air out. So it's sort of like the adaptations that we see in the heart, where an athlete's heart is generally going to be better at pumping out a lot of blood. So it's filling and then it's contracting appropriately to get blood out. It's similar when it comes to the lungs. And there's going to be other adaptations there at the level of the blood vessels within the lungs um, and various other changes that basically lend themselves towards athletes having better respiratory function. And that's obviously intrinsically linked then with the cardiovascular system as well. Because really importantly here, the lungs and the the lungs and the right side of the heart in some sense are really closely linked because from the right side of the heart what we get is the pumping of blood out to the pulmonary artery and that pulmonary artery is where the deoxygenated blood flows into the lungs to become oxygenated and we know that there are right heart adaptations and pulmonary artery adaptations um, that also improve this cardiorespiratory function which is why they have to be looked at together so cardiovascular exercise or cardiorespiratory exercise or aerobic exercise is probably the most potent in terms of um, improving respiratory function. And we see this in healthy individuals and in various disease states. So that cardio does form kind of the basis of the rationale for exercise uh, being of benefit for preventing uh, respiratory disease. Now, along with that, resistance training does also play a role, um, particularly when it comes to the ability to forcefully um, inspire and expire. So, as I said, there are muscles involved in uh, breathing. There's the diaphragm and there's the intercostals, but there's also other muscles that play an important role, <clears throat> especially for like really uh, intense breathing. One of the classic ones would be the pecs. You know, the pecs are a key respiratory muscle. And what you'll often see is if someone's in great respiratory distress, like in COPD or asthma, what they'll often do is they'll place their hands on their legs, they'll lean forward in a tripod position, and you'll visibly see them contracting their pecs and their serratus as they breathe um, quite aggressively very often. You see this all the time, people like athletes and stuff, yeah. when they really, really like push themselves, even though everyone always says, oh, that's a terrible position to uh, recover in even though literally your physiology really good, is yeah. like, this is, this is pretty a fantastic position to ensure that you maximize the amount of oxygen you can gulp in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's actually kind of one of the, the things that you, you'll often see, you'll often see athletes, what they do is 
they put their hands up over their heads and they get told to do that. They, they get told not to lean forward. And I mean, part- like intuitively, it kind of makes sense. You're yeah. like, okay, I'm going to open up. Lungs. I'm going to be able to open up the ability to expand the lungs, but it's not really true. Yeah, what you often end up doing is almost um, restricting your ability to breathe effectively then. Um, whereas if you lean forward, you're actually far better able to uh, get a deep breath in. So resistance training also plays a role here, but this becomes particularly important when you have established um, respiratory disease because uh, some respiratory diseases, you know, COPD, for example, do have strong features of cachexia or sarcopenia where we have a loss of muscle mass and resistance training plays a very important role. So cardio is important now and resistance training is important. What we want to discuss now is exercise, exercise's role in the management or treatment of respiratory disease. So first, yeah, before we get onto that, on. we should also just make the caveat, make the point clear that if you are smoking, if you are an individual that smokes, yeah. <laughs> like getting rid of smoking, get rid, getting rid of weed smoking, cigarette smoking, any kind of inhaling fucking burnt stuff, that's probably your biggest return on investment here. Like all of the stuff we're talking about is under the assumption that you're not continuing <laughs> uh, smoking, right? So that's your, your biggest return on investment. It kind of goes without saying, but like they always say with like oh, the GP, you're supposed to, you're supposed to always oh, do you smoke? Like, try not to smoke, yeah. etc. Like, I'm just going to bring it up purely because people kind of forget about that, you know? Yeah, you, you cannot exercise or diet your way out of that risk. Smoking is just, it's it's so bad. <laughs> like, it's really, really bad, particularly for respiratory disease. Um, and there's, there's no, you know, intervention that can overcome that, okay? Um, and COPD, for that reason, is very often basically considered to be a smoker's disease. Also, we should... Uh, say what COPD is. Sorry, I always do that, yeah. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, It's one of those things that's, it's kind of named in a a vague way. So it's chronic, it's long-term, it's obstructive. It has an obstructive pattern. As I mentioned previously, you have kind of, you can think of it as like a blockage within the tube or an inefficiency within the tube. Um, And then it's a pulmonary disease. So it's not like hyper-specified because it's got like it's got different subtypes. It manifests slightly differently in different people, but fundamentally what you've got is a chronic disease um, of breathing that often um, has features of obstruction um, or always has features of obstruction really. So that's uh, COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And it's thought of as being basically a smoker's disease. You can get COPD without smoking, but the vast, vast, vast majority of people um, are going to be smokers. Oftentimes you'll also see it in people that live in like really polluted areas yeah. or they do stuff like it's not as common now, but they live in a house that does have poor ventilation mm-hmm. and they are using like a, a peat fire <laughs> or whatever, you know? Um, but anyway, while we're explaining things, we probably should just note a few of the respiratory diseases mm-hmm. purely because we're saying respiratory disease a lot here. and. Yeah people might not be aware of it and we don't need to go too deep into it copd is one of the ones that we're kind of mainly talking about here but a secondary one is asthma and a lot of people are aware of asthma just Mm -hmm. from either experiencing it themselves or knowing people that experience it like if you went to school for example you're probably like oh this guy has asthma when we play sports he needs an inhaler or whatever you know um but what is asthma yeah so asthma is actually 
it's it's probably the it's the other kind of core obstructive disease so it's kind of similar to copd in some ways so asthma is kind of characterized by airway hyperreactivity. So effectively, like it's important to understand that the, the tubes that I mentioned previously, those airway tubes, they're not just static. They're not like metal pipes. So like everything in physiology, like the blood vessels, they're reactive. So they react to um, the stimulation, particularly by the sympathetic nervous system. So they've got smooth, smooth muscle within the airways. And as you can imagine, sympathetic stimulation of the airways of the smooth muscles is going to lead to bronchodilation okay that means that the airways open up makes a lot of sense okay we get the same thing in the pupils they dilate and respond to in response to sympathetic stimulation again we think of that sympathetic it's the fight or flight mm -hmm. i need to i need to respond to something yeah. So you need to get, you can imagine if you're, if you're in a stressed state, what do you want? You want a lot of air in, you don't want yourself to be constricting your airways and not able to breathe. So you get bronchodilation as a result of sympathetic stimulation. And in asthma, what we see is this sort of airway hyperreactivity and particularly in response to like, for example, um, environmental pollutants or the cold stress of exercise, or for example, in swimmers exposed to chlorine and those types of things. Um, it, it varies by person. There, there are so many different subtypes of asthma and different triggers that people would ha will have. And it's often associated with other um, atopic diseases, which are those diseases that are, you know, for example, like allergic rhinitis, where you kind of have allergies, hay fever, et cetera, um, to various pollutants or foods, et cetera. So asthma, you get that hyperreactive state. And an example of what that would look like would be if I go out and exercise in the cold, um, what can happen to me is my airways get basically stressed by that cold and they'll begin to constrict. And when they constrict, I'm not as well able to get air in and air out. And for that reason, asthma is classically um, associated with a wheeze. So you'll get um, this wheeze when someone's breathing out in particular. So when I breathe out, you're going to hear like a, <laughs> it's kind of a sound. So, and that's basically the sound that's coming from those airways um, when the air is trying to, to escape through very narrow tubes. So it's like a squeezy toy. Yeah. You know, give to a dog or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. So you're pressing air through a very narrow tube and you get that wheezing sound as a result. So that's asthma. I'm sorry, before you go on, can you age out of asthma? The people say that all the time where it's like, oh, I just grew up and I grew out of my asthma. But people also say that they developed asthma mm -hmm. at a later stage. Is that possible? Yeah, it can happen in, in both directions, really. Um, I was diagnosed with asthma as a, as a teenager. Whether or not I had it, I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I did because it wasn't very nice at the time. But I, I don't have asthma now, really. You know, you, there is like residual you know, risk of, you know, exercise related asthma symptoms and things like that. But um, the disease uh, itself can can modify over time and people can um, develop symptoms of asthma later in life as well. Because um, it really depends on the causative factor yeah. of that asthma. Like if you live again in like a polluted area, you know, you might be like, okay, I have asthma as a result of that. Um, and then you move somewhere else into the countryside and all of a sudden you're like, you know what, actually, I'm much better able to breathe. Now, like you could argue that maybe that's a misdiagnosis of asthma, but either way, you were having the symptoms of asthma and it resolved by moving somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, and like when we, we say asthma, we say it kind of as if it's one disease, whereas if you were to go to like a respiratory specialist <clears throat> consultant, like they might try to, you know, further subclassify your asthma. So you can have like 
an obese phenotype of asthma, which is going to be different to other types of asthma. So you might have one that's very strongly related to other atopic conditions that you might have, like those allergic conditions that I mentioned. Um, it might be very strongly related to environmental exposures and, 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 and many more different subtypes. So um, it's not, it's not going to be the same for everyone, but fundamentally it's a hyperreactive airway disease and you also get chronic remodeling as a result. Uh, that's kind of the common theme with, with a lot of respiratory diseases where you can have like an initial insult, but then it begins to modify over time. So you can get, you know, hypertrophy of the airways and, and various different changes um, related to that. So that's asthma. There's other respiratory diseases as well. Like obviously you can get infections like pneumonia, for example, um, infections can some times lead to longer term problems um, infections often feature very strongly in COPD as well, where people will often be hospitalized for infection. So when we discuss uh, pneumonia or infection, it's often um, going to be really of importance to other respiratory diseases as well. You can get various forms of bronchitis, pulmonary fibrosis, sarcoidosis, pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary emboli, as I mentioned previously, um, and you can have pulmonary edema and effusions uh, secondary to other diseases like heart failure and, and things like that. So um, there are many other respiratory diseases. I mentioned, you know, cystic fibrosis. You can have different types of interstitial lung disease and things like that as well. Um, you see this in, you know, in, in, in farmers or people that are exposed to animals. There are, you know, different uh, exposures you can get. Um, you know, mesothelioma is another thing that you'll see in response to um, asbestos exposure. And that can even emerge up to like, well, classically kind of, you know, decades after, 50 years after the exposure to asbestos. And you can have people that suddenly present with this restrictive lung disease and it's a mesothelioma in response to um, asbestos exposure in their past life. So that can happen. Um, and, and often, you know, if you have a respiratory disease that isn't well classified, your doctor will often ask about, you know, your past occupations because you can have different... Um, you know, pollutants or um, ingredients within, I don't know, paint and different types of things like that, that might have been used in the past in your industry that are now impacting the health of your lungs years later. So you see uh, this as well and stuff that's actually like a, a physical irritant. It doesn't just have to be some sort of like chemical because mm -hmm. people often make that mistake. Like, for example, you might see stuff like people using fiberglass, mm -hmm. you know, very, very thin, thin fibers. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's actually fine. I was, you know, spraying fiberglass onto a boat or something and they weren't wearing a mask and they were actually breathing in some of these fibers. And as a result, they have some sort of respiratory disease as a as a consequence of that, because these really thin fibers are actually in the lungs. Like your, your body can't get rid of it, can't get rid of them, you know. Yeah, that's probably likely to come about more quickly if it is a physical irritant. Um, but it is something to just keep in mind as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So when it comes to kind of the two, the two main diseases that we'll, we'll talk about today will be um, asthma and COPD. Um, so asthma does um, improve in response to exercise. So generally what you'll find is that when someone is consistently exercising and they have pre-existing mm -hmm. asthma, they do generally get better uh, asthma management. Um, they'll also generally have improved cardiorespiratory function overall. And when I say asthma management, I suppose I should say that, you know, that will be things like not needing to use the inhaler as much, for example, or um, less uh, asthma attacks or exacerbations. Okay. Um, and that, in, that point about inhaler use is important because very often what's used 
in asthma management, you know, classically the blue inhaler um, is a beta-2 agonist, such as salbutamol. And a beta-2 agonist is basically what that means is it's it's um, agonizing the beta-2 adrenergic receptors. And these receptors are part of that sympathetic uh, nervous system that I mentioned previously. So normally the sympathetic nervous system is what agonizes those adrenergic receptors. And what I mentioned previously was that that leads to bronchodilation. So you can see here clearly that the beta-2 agonist will lead to that bronchodilation, which makes sense in a disease that's classified by bronchoconstriction, where you've got that constriction of the blood or of the airways. Now, the important thing to note when it comes to an intervention that reduces um, inhaler use is that in response to chronic use of these inhalers, you actually begin to adapt and to become somewhat desensitized to them. So you won't have the same response over time if you're constantly using that inhaler. So ideally- And, and, and an easy way to think about this is the same way you would take another stimulant, let's say mm -hmm. caffeine, right? If you take a lot of caffeine over time, like you start noticing less and less of its effects. You know, mm -hmm. you don't get as stimulated. A lot of people like yourself, Gary, who's addicted to caffeine, like you'll be able to drink a cup of coffee within an hour of going to bed and yeah. you're like, I can still go to sleep, you know? Now you do still notice effects. It's not like they just become completely, you know, useless. It's not like you're not actually still getting some stimulatory mm -hmm. effect from caffeine, but it's much less potent, right? And it's the same with any kind of stimulant, as far as I'm aware. Um, and we can kind of think, if we're talking about these adrenergic receptors, we can kind of think of those as being like, stimulating mm -hmm. receptors you know and um, so if you're taking something like you know the the blue inhaler salbutamol albuterol clenbuterol any of those ones like you're going to notice some sort of down regulation you're still getting effects for sure you know but there is uh desensitization to those effects yes and so as i said exercise basically plays a role in allowing you to manage your asthma a bit better um and to some degree it will like this this is kind of a, a slightly related or a very much related topic but people can have exercise induced asthma or exercise induced bronchoconstriction that isn't they don't have asthma so they can be healthy and have exercise induced bronchoconstriction and what that means is that they've got asthma like symptoms that's particularly provoked by exercise and in this case you might say oh well how does exercise benefit that and in this case what you're talking about really is the type of exercise so generally like if you've got exercise induced bronchoconstriction it's probably going to be associated with like very intense exercise or the environment that you're in so for example um the extremes of um hot or cold um various um you know depending on the level of humidity that's in the air depending on the pollutants the area that you're training um and also things like as i said swimmers um is the pool chlorinated that can have effects as well so it can also actually happen as well in response to say really stressful environments like you're going to compete like you yeah. see that all the time where people are like i feel like i have asthma only when i'm competing in my sport mm -hmm. you know it's like oh i can train all day i can do all the stuff in the lead up to it but as soon as i have a game or a match or whatever all of a sudden they're like i'm getting the kind of asthma symptoms and that's mm -hmm. probably related to more of that like nervous system stuff but again it is one of those ones where it's it's kind of paradoxical it's mm -hmm. kind of hard to really uh like see what's going on yeah so whether you have 
asthma beyond just exercise or whether it's just that you get those symptoms um it is you know important to learn how to manage that because what we know is that people with asthma you know once they learn to manage it they can reach their peak level of performance with no detriment you know there's no issue because they're on appropriate management and typically what that will look like is something like using an inhaled uh, corticosteroid inhaler classically the brown inhaler which is kind of like your preventer and then your reliever inhaler which is the blue one you know 10 to 15 minutes or so prior to exercise um, if you know that you get those symptoms of exercise induced bronchoconstriction which typically are kind of within the first 10 minutes of an exercise session obviously depending on whether you've warmed up and those types of things so if you're well managed you know and obviously speak to your doctor about that of course um, you shouldn't really expect to be leaving you know gains on the table or leaving performance on the table because you can absolutely achieve um great levels of performance and what we see is that athletes actually do have an elevated risk of um asthma which is kind of surprising because i'm telling you that exercise is of benefit but again the difference between just exercising and sport is you know something that's there's a clear difference there and in sport you're often dealing with some of these additional environmental factors um, and there's low, moderate and high risk sports. And then there's the kind of highest, highest risk would be um, swimming. And I think we see up to 55% um, in winter sports of um, athletes that report asthma, which is a lot. You know, that's a lot of people with asthma. But winter sports, obviously, you're dealing with often the extremes of cold and you're dealing with the respiratory distress of exercise. So you're basically in a position where you're aggressively breathing in and out. You're doing so with very cold air and that can provoke um, asthma. We see it in lower rates, but still relatively prevalent of 22 or 23% in uh, summer sports athletes. And then we've got various levels of risk depending on, you know, is it just someone that's running um, you know, they're running track, maybe 1500 meters, relatively low risk. Whereas if someone's like a long-term ultra endurance athlete, it's going to be higher risk. Um, and then swimming, as I said previously, is going to be the highest risk. So there's various levels of risk here, but there's Just also before probably- Before we move on as well, on the winter sports and the summer sports as well, there is a thing that's very often not calculated into this, which is the elevation. Mm -hmm. Like it, it does play a role. If there's less, well, effectively if there's less oxygen in the environment like you might notice more asthma like symptoms and this is a little bit more prevalent in the winter sports because while it's not usually a huge factor it does play a role like if you're doing something like i don't know downhill skiing or something and you're going somewhere that is already at a higher elevation and if you're not accustomed to that what we often think of all the like blood related stuff the like red blood cell count and all that kind of stuff like your lungs still have to adapt to that as well and if you are already at a higher risk or you know you have asthma or whatever that is an additional thing to factor in mm -hmm. absolutely and like likewise with that is the the idea of where you train you know if you live in an inner city environment and you're a runner you know probably best to try to do your longer runs you know somewhere away from um areas of high air pollution and generally what you can do is you can actually look at like there's various apps there's various websites where you can look up the air pollution um in your area and you know people with hay fever or asthma will do this sometimes where they'll look up you know the the pollen count or something like that but you can also look up the amount of environmental pollutants in the air or the air quality and 
then that can give you an idea as to be the best place to train, for example. Um, but that does actually play a fairly and fairly significant role in terms of not only provoking symptoms, but also long-term risk of disease. Because you can think that, you know, oh, well, yeah, I live in an inner city area. I don't really get any symptoms, but they say the air quality is not great, but I'm fine for now. But you think of that over 50 years, 50 years of exposure, and you can be at elevated risk. So and a lot of the stuff is you wouldn't, like you wouldn't even notice it. Like no. say for example, like I, I use a whoop, right? And that gives you like your uh, respiratory rate, right? While you're sleeping, right? And when I go to different places, that changes quite a lot. It actually seems to change quite a lot in response to like the actual environmental pollutants in that area, like the, the air quality, we'll call it. Now, obviously there's other factors that play into it. I wouldn't be just you know, throwing my hat on just that as the main factor, like stress levels affect it. You know, I could have maybe a little bit of a cold, like there's so many other things that go into it. But for example, if you go to like somewhere like Barcelona versus London, like Barcelona has objectively a shitter air quality, <laughs> right? Um, so there, my respiratory respiratory rate is higher, right? And if I'm in London, again, it's at a certain level. If I'm you know, in the countryside, like I was in Bath uh, last week or two weeks ago, um, and it was much better, you know, it was much lower. I and mean, I was even dealing with a little bit of a cold then, and it was still in a lower place, you know? Whereas if I go to Dublin, again, it's a little bit lower than London. I presume if I was down in the Chad Kerry, it would be lower again, mm -hmm. you know? So you might not notice that. Like, I don't notice. I couldn't tell you, am I taking 12 breaths per minute versus 15? But, you know, objectively i can look at it that and go okay there is a change here you know so it is affecting you even if you don't necessarily notice it at the time and like you said gary this is a kind of a, a compounding effect as well like it's accumulative it happens over a long period of time and what we have to factor in then as well as if you are someone that's effectively breathing more by virtue of exercise like you're out doing a run you know you're you're, you're breathing more you're technically getting more breaths so it's not just a like an exposure over years, it has to be thought of as an exposure over breaths. Breaths. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and like the, the other just note there is that I mentioned the beta 2 adrenergic signaling that occurs in response to uh, those inhalers. But importantly, those beta 2 receptors don't just exist in the lungs. They do exist other areas in the body. And while we are being somewhat selective in inhaling them, there is there are still some systemic effects. And that includes skeletal muscle. And this brings up the conversation of, you know, are these drugs performance enhancing? Because the, in some sports, it seems like there's a suspiciously high rate of so-called asthma. You know, so it begs the question, are some athletes potentially um, being you know, diagnosed um, at, at very, you know, speculative levels of airway irritation and then using these drugs for performance enhancement. Um, there's a debate there, you know, the, the absolute or the, the observed increases in performance, if present, are fairly minuscule, but, you know, minuscule in professional sport is potentially beneficial. So um, there might be, there might be some inflation um, there of the amount of people that actually use asthma drugs because of a potential performance benefit. Yeah. And also you see this in the, in the gym as well. Like clambuterol is yeah. used as a, uh, a, a means of getting faster fat loss, mm -hmm. you know, so in physique related sports or even non-physique related sports, but ones that require you to be a little bit leaner, like you could see a use for them there. Now, clambuterol and albuterol or salbutamol, they're all different. It's not like yeah. they're the exact same. Um, but they are still stimulating the same receptor. 
to a different degree, but regardless, still the same receptor. Um, and there are, we could be here all day going into the like mechanistic hypothesis in terms of why you would want some beta adrenergic signaling, you know, whether you get some cognitive effects, mm-hmm. some like hyped up effects, even some muscle building effects um, and you know, the actual quality of that muscle as well. Like there's a variety of reasons why you would suspect someone would want to use uh, an asthma drug um, for performance enhancement. Um, And I'm a bit of a a skeptic on most things, especially related to sport. And I would probably argue that the vast majority of them are using it for a performance enhancement rather than having asthma itself. But that's my uh, jaded perspective. I just think everyone's on drugs. They're all trying to get their drugs. They're all trying to get their performance enhancement. And I just don't believe that like, what is it like 70% of the Liverpool team have asthma? <laughs> it's something ridiculous <laughs> like, anyway, like and especially I, I, for, I, for, for soccer, which isn't the highest risk sport. It's yeah. like moderate risk. Like, and like I grew up sporting Liverpool, so I'm not like a Liverpool <laughs> hater. You know, I just, I just know the stats for them. Well, I roughly know the stats for them, um, but it is a very high prevalence. You know, it's like, why is this occurring in just, you know, a few select teams, <laughs> a few select people, you know, it's like, you know, come on. <laughs> Yeah, well, Liverpool aren't in great at the moment. Though. It doesn't matter. Yeah, they're still the best team in the world. <laughs> um, one thing I should say as well on the asthma front, just before we round that out, is that um, you do also seem to have. There are this is this is an area kind of of ongoing research. And it's a difficult thing to study, and that is in relation to the the long term pathogenesis or the the airway inflammation and associated changes long term. Does exercise modulate that? It probably does. Um, it seems like there's some evidence to suggest that you probably do get beneficial effects on airway inflammation in response to exercise. And probably specifically that, you know, low to moderate intensity um, aerobic exercise. So not like super hard intervals that are going to provoke your asthma symptoms, but that moderate intensity aerobic exercise is, is probably a benefit there. There, that's an open-ended question for now because you just need a lot more evidence on that. Um, but there's probably some benefits there rather than just symptom management, also the long-term control of disease. So um, just on that as well, in that obese asthma um, subcategory, there's probably been a bit, probably going to be particular benefits of exercise in that case because there are, sorry, something's opening. Um, they're all good. What that was, um, because in in obesity, obviously, there's very much going to be specific benefits associated with exercise. You're probably going to have more success uh, with weight loss, and we know that weight loss in obesity leads to better asthma control. Um, we also know that there's going to be other changes, like for, related to leptin, adiponectin, insulin, basically the kind of endocrine factors. They can be related to asthma um, and also the inflammatory and immune changes associated with asthma. So all these things play into better control of obesity associated asthma from exercise. There's also, um, it's also important to note that, you know, there is a, a mechanical component there to asthma as well. You know, if you've got like these restricted tubes, let's say that are hyper reactive and they're now being compressed to some extent, and you've also got really high um, levels of adiposity. So you've got high BMI and you've got all this pressure that's on your chest from excessive fat, 
then that can also compromise respiratory function. So basically exercise probably has some additional benefits um, there. But again, it's not like we have all these very specific exercise trials in asthma subtypes, but it's just something to consider, particularly if maybe you developed asthma later in life in response to becoming quite obese. So that's something that's uh, worth considering as well. Now, moving on from asthma, moving back. on, moving on from asthma, back to COPD, just very briefly, to be honest, um, just as I said previously, COPD has pulmonary manifestations related to the lungs and very similar to asthma, you're going to have better um, respiratory function, you're going to have um, lower rates of hospitalizations, um, and you're also going to have um, a, redu a reduction in all-cause mortality, which is obviously important. So you're at lower risk of death if you're exercising, and you're also going to have lower levels of fatigue regardless of the type of exercise that you do. That's been studied in terms of the endurance versus resistance training. Regardless of what you do, you get better control of fatigue throughout your day, which is really important in COPD because it can be quite debilitating. So overall, again, what we see is that exercise plays a very important role there. And for that reason, COPD um, patients are, are the primary attendants at uh, pulmonary rehab. So we mentioned in the last episode of Richie, the topic of cardiac rehab, which is where you're effectively referred into a cardiac rehab program in response to the diagnosis of a cardiovascular disease or being at high risk of cardiovascular disease or having had an event. It's similar when it comes to um, respiratory disease. And during my physio degree, I did work in uh, pulmonary rehab classes. And it's of a very similar nature where you're working on your um, cardio cardiovascular fitness, you're working on um, things like balance in some cases, depending on the patient, um, and you're working on your strength as well with resistance training. So similar principles apply there in terms of uh, respiratory and cardiac rehab and COPD would make up kind of the biggest bunch there. And although there's those pulmonary effects, as I said, there's also extra pulmonary effects of COPD and particularly long-term what we see is high rates of um, cachexia or sarcopenia where people become quite frail, they lose a lot of muscle mass um, and they, they end up in somewhat of a hypermetabolic state as a result of the constant respiratory distress. You can imagine if you're constantly um, have an elevated uh, breathing rate and you need to breathe deeper and it's taking you a lot of effort and you're constantly fatigued, your energy expenditure is going to be up as a result. Um, and that can then um, result in you know lower rates of um, body fat itself, but also muscle mass, bone mass, etc. There are some people with uh, COPD that will be more of a, a kind of obese phenotype, but this kind of elderly frail uh, individual with COPD is, is one of the, the classic stereotypes of COPD, if you will. So exercise there is going to play an extra role, not just in terms of the respiratory function, but also in terms of improving muscle mass, improving strength, and as a result, improving function in day-to-day -day life. So that's a particular consideration in someone with COPD and cachexia associated with it. It kind of makes sense, even though you, it kind of seems a bit paradoxical, like it makes sense that you would, like your body would preferentially lose muscle if you do have some sort of uh, debilitating respiratory disease, mm -hmm. not just from the lack of activity that you, you might be doing because you know, you're, you're, you're like, oh, I can't, I can't breathe effectively. I don't like training as a result. But the thing that uses a lot of that oxygen, like we were talking about earlier, like that very first thing we brought up is muscle mass like that's where a lot of this me metabolic stuff is going on so if your body's going i can't get in enough oxygen here 
I'm going to get rid of metabolically demanding tissue, right? And if you can kind of think of it in a case where you're like, okay, well, calories are still the same. It's not really the exact, like you wouldn't get the same exact outcomes as a result. And the reason for that is, well, what I mean, I'm kind of going a bit all over the place. If you have two individuals that are both eating like 3000 calories, like someone with COPD might as a result build less muscle than someone who doesn't have it purely because the body is kind of going, but well, we're not getting in enough oxygen to be able to actually build metabolic tissue, to be able to use this metabolic tissue, this metabolically demanding tissue, I should say, which is muscle, whereas I can actually just add some more, you know, kind of inert, very low metabolic uh, activity tissue, such as fat tissue, right? Um, now, do you get less results in the gym while having COPD? That's not really well studied as far as I'm aware, but again, we can make some sort of mechanistic hypothesis, which again, feeds into the next thing, which is if you do have something like COPD or even asthma to a degree, although it's to a less degree, like you are probably less likely to exercise purely because like I was saying mm -hmm. just a second ago, like you don't enjoy it as much. You go out yeah. to exercise and you're like, <gasps> like you feel like crap, right? So as a result, you're like, I'm just not going to do that thing anymore, which gets you into this really, really bad negative feedback loop, especially with COPD where you effectively aren't taxing the muscles as much. So you're losing more muscle and your body is also kind of going, well, you know what, if we had less muscle, that would actually be a good thing because that requires less oxygen and I'm not getting in enough oxygen because my, my lungs don't work, you know? And so you set up an environment where you're almost guaranteeing sarcopenia to occur. You're almost guaranteeing that muscle loss is going to preferentially occur. So it is really important for someone or individuals with COPD to, in my mind, at least do the bare minimum with resistance training. Like you need to supply that signal to keep that muscle mass. You need to supply that signal to say to your body going, okay, we need to keep this muscle mass. I know like your, your body's like, I know like it wants to get rid of it. It wants to get rid of all this metabolically demanding tissue, but you need to supply that signal to say, we need to keep this tissue to be able to function. You know, ideally we would argue it, you know, most likely you want to go above and beyond just the bare minimum signal to maintain what you have. Ideally we're building a reserve because there's going to be time periods in your life where, you know, you're bed bound for a while, like you, you get sick or whatever. Like we don't want to lose a load of muscle then. And all of a sudden start this kind of death spiral basically where you're like all right you've lost that muscle now you're not as able to exercise you're not able to do all these things you find it harder to build that muscle again and then there's another period of decline and then all of a sudden we're in this spiral 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 all the way downwards you know and so yeah exercise resistance training is good for copd obviously aerobic training is good for copd um but before we kind of wrap everything up is there like a baseline exercise protocol that we would suggest someone with copd or asthma or any of these kind of respiratory diseases well is there any kind of baseline that we would recommend people to do and then how would we get someone into doing that right so say you have someone comes to you they're I don't know, 45 years old they have COPD and they're like, I've never really exercised before. I don't know what to do. Or maybe they have done some training before, but now they're like, I, I don't know where I should start with this stuff. Like, give me some sort of guidelines for exercise here. Yeah, the ideal is that someone can follow the general exercise guidelines. 
um, for health. And that would be 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week and two to three resistance training sessions, at least two, um, training all major muscle groups. But the difficult thing there, of course, is that, excuse me, someone with a, a chronic respiratory disease is going to find it difficult to just jump straight to the guidelines. So that's why things like pulmonary rehab and exercise classes can be useful that are targeted specifically for these individuals. But fundamentally, the principles that you're trying to abide by are gridded exposure and, and exercising as tolerated. So initially what someone might do, let's say they have COPD, it's, you know, they've got a management plan in place if they're going to be exercising, you know, how they manage their symptoms, etc. They might just be starting by walking on the flat. You know, they might be walking in the flat for 30 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it happens to be, depending on their level. And they gradually then expose themselves to longer durations or an incline walk. And maybe eventually they're doing a bit of cycling or the cross trainer, whatever it happens to be. But ultimately, what you want to do is you want to start at that level uh, that you can tolerate and gradually work your way up over time. And you also want to try to create your own kind of personalized approach to exercise you know you might find that um one cardio machine always provokes your symptoms for whatever reason maybe you get your heart rate up much quicker your respiratory rate up much quicker whereas another you're much better able to control your symptoms so that might be something that's advisable for you you might be testing out you know for example exercising outdoors versus indoors how does that manage your symptoms um you know some gyms might be of different temperatures or different levels of humidity or you know you might be close to the air conditioner versus further away and maybe that impacts your symptoms so all of these things will um, impact that kind of baseline level of tolerance and that's why i recommend that you try to create your own kind of tailored approach while following that basic guideline of right i want to do aerobic training i want to do resistance training um, you can still follow like the target of hitting 150 minutes of aerobic exercise per week by just walking. It might literally just be that you get out for a walk for a half an hour, five times per week. That might be your level of tolerance now. And then gradually you increase the intensity as you get fitter and as your tolerance improves. And then with, resist with resistance training, you might just be doing super light, you know, the pink dumbbells in the corner of the gym at the beginning. And then eventually you get closer to more conventional resistance training where you're using other free weights and barbells and machines, etc. Um, that's that's basically how you approach it. There's no one size fits all because the spectrum here is athletes who are unbelievably high performing with asthma to the individual with COPD who's on long term home oxygen therapy and can barely cook dinner from the for themselves. The same principles apply in the sense that do what you can. Um, but their needs are obviously going to be extremely divergent there. Yeah, hundred percent. So again, graded exposure, try to, if you're not already at them, try to get to that baseline guidelines of, you know, two to three resistance training sessions per week. And then on top of that, whatever cardio your, uh, time allows, like whatever yeah. you can allot to it, you know, um, and give up smoking. I give up smoking as we said at the start that's uh, assumed that's the the assumption and that means vaping that means all of those different things you know yeah. like obviously some are better and worse but either way inhaling an irritant is probably not great not good and you'd be surprised i've seen some people with very severe copd going out for their cigarettes in the hospital you know and sometimes with their oxygen, which is like a very high contraindication for obvious reasons. <laughs> Smoking yes. and oxygen 
do not recommend. <laughs> it's a, an explosive mix. At least. <laughs> explosive mixes, right. Um, uh, so I think that's everything. Yeah, I think that is. But one thing I do want to bring up because you often see it online is do we need to do postural work if we have a respiratory disease? Is that something that we should be focusing on? Because you like intuitively, it kind of makes sense. Again, when we were talking about like oh, this tripod position where you're like, oh, I want to put my hands on my knees and get my breath. Like a lot of people would say like, oh, put the arms over the head so you can open up the lungs. Should we be doing postural work so that we can you know, stand tall with our, our shoulders back? Or is that actually going to affect our respiratory ability at all? Now, obviously at the extremes, like if you are someone that's bent over mm-hmm. and you literally can't even like inhale anyway deeply because you're bent over like you see old people a lot of the time and they're literally like looking down at the ground like that's just their their spinal position obviously in them there's going to be a benefit to being able to stand up straight but just in general yeah you do see people with copd um adopting that kind of kyphotic posture sometimes where i can get towards that kind of extreme where i would want someone to you know have in their resistance training program to be working the upper back to be trying to get into more spinal extension to improve their overall like range of movement that they have available now generally is is postural work going to be at the core of kind of managing your symptoms not really i think the only time that i'd be discussing posture as such would be if someone's trying to um you know if you're if i'm teaching them how to use like a, a tripod position or leaning against the wall to be able to recover their breathing but it's it's often in the opposite direction to the classical postural position generally we want someone leaned over against something with their arms rested so they can breathe well um but in general um no there are cases where someone's like posture or bodily structure does actually significantly impact the respiratory function an example of that would be something like a severe scoliosis someone has a a very large scoliosis what that can end up with is basically you can get compression of the lung on one side and very ineffective breathing really um so that's that's somewhere that it might be important but for most people it's not going to be a a strong consideration really unless it's clearly compromising their respiratory function yeah i kind of tend to think of it as okay if we've got all the other guidelines ticked all the boxes and we're doing general what would be considered postural work as in like we're moving our body like how it's supposed to move you know like we're doing deadlifts for example and we're like okay there is some degree of spinal extension you know people say oh you shouldn't extend your lower back when you're deadlifting but either way i'm talking about your upper back here and like we're we are getting some degree of opening up the lungs in an extended position and still being able to breathe in this like leaned over position once we've ticked all the boxes with the kind of baseline stuff if someone wants to do some more postural work like i'm not against it like i'd like to see them doing more activity in general i'm like cool we'll we'll do some stuff like that we'll make sure that you have uh control in all these ranges of motion and i can only see that as a benefit you know um, but anyway, Gary, I think that wraps this episode up at least. Obviously, there's a lot more that we could discuss yep, in relation, relation to this. Um, but for now, where can people find us and all that? So as always, guys, we do have uh, coaching spaces available currently. So if you'd like to work with any member of our coaching team, you can do so. All you need to do is go to the description box below and you'll find more information out about that. We do also have a nutrition course. So if you're a personal trainer or you're someone who just wants to become a certified nutritionist, you can do our nutrition course, get certified with us and become competent in that domain. Additionally, 
we have a lot of free information that we put out. Obviously, with the podcast, we always appreciate when you guys, you know, share it on your stories or with friends, etc. Or if you leave a rating and review, we also have a lot of content that we put out on social media. So follow Triage Method on social media and subscribe to the Triage Method newsletter, which you can get again additional free information related to. Fantastic, Ariane. I think that's it. That's so. it. Bye bye. <laughs>